This show is for adult listeners and may contain harsh language and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This is a podcast dedicated to Edmonton true crime. This is episode one about Travis Baumgartner. My sources are Wikipedia, CBC News, thestar.com, and archive.org. At the time of the shooting, Travis Brandon Baumgartner, born May 16, 1991, was living in Sherwood Park, Alberta, with his mother. Baumgartner had been hired by G4S Cash Solutions two months prior to the attack. He had no known disciplinary problems. It is a requirement from the security agent to obtain a federal firearms license, which includes a background check being run on the applicant. Steinberg added that employees are encouraged to report any odd behavior to colleagues to supervisors and have the option of using a company hotline to report anonymously. She said that she was not aware of any such reports concerning Baumgartner. On June 1, 2012, Baumgartner posted the following status on his Facebook account. I wonder if I'd make it to the 6 o'clock news if I just started popping people off. Baumgartner's account featured a large picture of a human skull engulfed in red flames and a photo of himself wearing sunglasses and a black balaclava over his face. According to a friend, Baumgartner would tell him that he would rob his co-workers in a jokingly manner. In a police interview, Baumgartner told a detective that he did not get along with his co-workers and that people at his workplace would ridicule him. At the time of the shooting, Baumgartner had 26 cents in his bank account and owed $58,000 to his mother and two friends due to debt over a purchase of a car and other items and that he felt like he needed to owe money to a friend due to years of being forked over money by him. Then on June 5th, Baumgartner quoted lyrics from the song Viking Death March by punk rock band Billy Talent, Crosses to Burn, Axes to Fall, and Down on Your Knees You Don't Look So Tall. On June 15th, 21-year-old security guard Travis Baumgartner shot four of his co-workers, three fatally, in the Hub Mall building on the campus of the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He stole his employer's armored truck and money and gave the cash or left it at the homes of his mother and two friends. Several minutes into midnight, Baumgartner perpetrated the crime while on duty at the mall a student residence and indoor food court during the routine circuit with four co-workers to replenish ATMs around the city of Edmonton as a part of their employment with G4S Cash Solutions. While refilling the TD ATMs, Baumgartner shot three of his co-workers with a 38 caliber revolver as they entered in the security vault located behind the machines before locking them inside. He then approached the armored car they were using and shot and killed another co-worker. All four victims were shot in the back of the heads at point-blank range. He then stole the vehicle and fled the scene. Three of the co-workers died at the scene. Brian Illisic, 35, Edgardo Eddie Rihano, 39, and Michelle Shigleski, 26. A fourth guard, Matthew Schumann, was critically injured in the shooting, sustaining brain injuries. A manhunt ensued as Baumgartner fled Edmonton, dropping off the money for his two friends and mother. While at a friend's home, Baumgartner destroyed his cell phone so that it could not be used to track him. After eventually hearing news reports in the media, both friends notified police and returned the money. Baumgartner left $64,000 on his mother's kitchen table and then left the Edmonton area.
He swapped his license plate for one of his mother's vehicles and drove away, heading west to the resort town of Banff. There he threw his weapon and vest into the river and headed to the United States border, supposedly to Seattle, Washington. On June 16, 2012, at 4.08 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, or Edmonton Time, Baumgartner was arrested by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection while he was trying to cross the border at the Port of Linden near Langley, British Columbia, with $333,000 in cash. Toronto-based security expert David Hyde said that any large security organization should have a policy that clearly states expectations around personal and professional use of social media, including whether the company intends to monitor employee accounts, provided laws allows for such monitoring. Because social media changes so quickly, it prevents a whole new frontier for security companies, Hyde said. If you're monitoring your employer's social media activity, you don't have to troll into every conversation, but if you set parameters to watch for key terms or words, and those words are used, you can go in and look at that particular information. It's not snooping or probing. There has to be a threshold that is crossed. End quote. He also noted that the most armored car guards are on the low end of the wage scale, making anywhere between $15 to $22 an hour, and not a lot considering their role is to guard sometimes millions of dollars. Quote, they could hire someone who has only grade 10. They could hire somebody that's 65 years old. There's no real standards and restrictions. In a sense, the companies have to self-regulate, Hyde said. I would like to think that these companies, particularly the biggies, that have lawyers and profits and losses to think about are they doing a lot of the right things and aren't hiring unsuitable people. Close quote. Here's parts of the transcripts of the agreed statements of facts between the Queen's Bench and Travis. The accused paid his mother rent to live in the basement of their home in Sherwood Park, Alberta. The money would be directly deposited once per month, and Sandra was trying to get the accused to change the deposits to twice per month. This led to an argument between them on the afternoon of June 14, 2012. The arguments got quite heated. The accused told her not to worry, she would get her money. Sandra described the accused as a different person that night, and he was so cold. The argument concluded with the accused telling his mother, It doesn't even matter. I'm not coming home, so don't worry about it. You'll get your money. Sandra started crying and went into a bedroom as the accused left for his shift at G4S at approximately 1,800 hours. The accused was assigned to work that evening with Brian, Eddie, Michelle, and Matthew on a routine circuit replenishing money at ATMs throughout Edmonton. The crew was normally four people, however, this was a training run with Michelle training the accused, Matthew, and Brian. The accused and Brian were in the armored truck, Eddie was driving. They were being followed by Michelle and Matthew in a van. All of the G4S employees were in the uniform and were armed with 38 caliber six-shot revolvers as well as two speed loaders on their belt. Speed loaders contain six bullets so that all can be loaded into the handgun at once. Each member had 18 rounds of ammunition in total. The ammunition was hollow point. A hollow point bullet is an expanding bullet that has a pit or hollowed out shape in its tip often intended to cause the bullet to expand upon entering in a target to, in order to decrease penetration and maximize tissue damage and blood loss or shock. 
During the course of the early evening, the accused was texting his friend Dylan. He had known the accused since they were in grade 7 together. The accused was talking about robbing G4S and then said something along the lines of, This is the night. The accused had mentioned robbing G4S before, but always said it jokingly. That is the reason why Dylan did not react to it. The accused made a number of comments on Facebook and internet social media website over the previous three months. April 19th, 2012. Two days till training. I get a gun. May 2nd. 2012, 100% shooting test, I am a god. May 10th, 2012, I had a dream where I went back to Haythorn and beat the shit out of anybody that made fun of me in the past. I love my mind. The accused, Brian, Michelle, and Matthew entered the small secure vestibule, providing access to the ATM. The vestibule is secured by a steel door which locks automatically when it is closed. The door cannot be accessed from the outside without a key. Brian was in possession of the key at all times. Brian and Matthew were at the ATM kneeling or crouched, preparing to put in all the money. Michelle was standing behind them observing and supervising. The accused was standing in the doorway. With the door closed and secured, while the three guards were facing away from the accused, concentrating on their jobs, the accused removed his G4S issued 38 caliber handgun from its holster. He shot Matthew in the left side of his head at point-blank range. He then shot Michelle in her head also at point-blank range, killing her instantly. Then he shot Brian twice in his head also at point-blank range, hit killing him instantly. The accused had shot all six bullets from his gun. Police later identified two holes in the vestibule consistent with fired projectiles. The accused had fired the two shots through the wall of the dorm adjacent to the ATM vestibule, with one of them striking the bathtub. The accused then left the ATM vestibule, shutting the door, leaving Brian, Michelle, and Matthew locked inside. Even if he had wanted to do so, the accused could not have re-entered the vestibule since the key was locked inside. The accused proceeded quickly through the hub mall, back towards the armored car. One of the students in the hub mall described him as running away. Since the door opened outward, it was impossible to batter down. Senior Sergeant Johnson took a battering ram out of the trunk of his police vehicle and went upstairs with Constable Dohaniak and Safira. He immediately noticed blood seeping under the door and heard a male screaming incoherently. Constable Dohaniak went back downstairs to get additional tools to try and unlock the door. Sergeant Johnson attempted to speak with the male inside who just kept yelling, help me, in a slurred voice. Many of his other words spoken were incomprehensible. There was a metal ventilation screen at the bottom of the door which Sergeant Johansson punched out with the ram. He was then able to look inside and see three bodies. Constable Dohaniak returned with a pickaxe, sledgehammer, and bolt cutters. A total of seven EPS members then attempted to gain entry into the vestibule. They started to breach the door with the pickaxe and ram to break the door handle. With the pickaxe and bolt cutters, they eventually were able to pry the door outward. They estimated it took one to two minutes to gain entry. Police formed a rapid deployment entry team, first responders who act without assistance of the tactical unit due to extingent circumstances and entered the vestibule. 
Once inside, they saw the two deceased victims, Brian and Michelle and Matthew. All were in G4S uniforms and still had their firearms secured to their holsters. There was a significant amount of blood on the floor around them in this very small room. Matthew had a chunk of his skull missing and his brain was exposed. EPS members cleared the room of threats and pulled Matthew, Michelle, and Brian out of the vestibule. Once they managed to get him outside, Matthew was taken by ambulance to the University of Alberta Emergency Department where he underwent a CT scan and emergency surgery from 2.30 in the morning to 6 o'clock. The surgeons retrieved one bullet from Matthew's head. The accused ultimately made his way back to G4S worksite and parked the armored car next to his own truck. He moved three packages of cash from the armored car into his vehicle. The amount was initially estimated to be $360,000. He left the rest of the cash in the, in the armored car and drove away. This was all recorded by a private video surveillance camera. They also seized the accused boots and pants, noting obvious blood splatter on his boots after his mother notified police about the money. The DNA analysis of these exhibits showed conclusively that the blood was that of Michelle and Eddie's. Members of the EPS, along with RCMP in Edmonton, Sherrod Park, Langley, BC, Canadian Border Security Agency, and U.S. Homeland Security participated in the investigation and efforts to apprehend the accused. They determined the accused was the suspect and issued a Canada-wide warrant for his arrest. At 15.08 hours, the accused approached the booth at the border crossing. As the vehicle passed, the license plate rendered the armed and dangerous alert sounded from the computer. The accused was arrested by the U.S. authorities. He had no passport on his person. The border guards located several large bundles of Canadian currency and black backpack in the truck as well as bundles scattered throughout the truck. The accused said to the border guards that he didn't remember anything for the last three to four days and that he was snatched and had a gun put to his face by a guy who told him to drive to Seattle and deliver the backpack to him or he would kill his family. At 10.25 hours the next day, he was removed from a cell for initial questioning by EPS homicide detective Scott Jones. The accused indicated that his name was David Webb and he claimed to have memory issues in relation to recent events. The accused was then returned to the holding cell on his own, and then at 13.48 hours, he was placed in the same cell as an undercover RCMP police officer. The undercover officer was portrayed as an experienced inmate. The interaction between the officer and the accused was both audio and video recorded. They talked about general issues, and at one point the accused was stated he didn't remember anything and they had been calling him Travis, but his name was David Webb. He told the officer that he had been told that he had killed three people, also stating that he didn't remember anything from the last five days and barely remembered anything about his life. David Webb is the real name of the fictional character Jason Bourne. The protagonist of a series of novels by Robert Ludlum and subsequent film adaptations. Jason Bourne's character is that of a covert assassin. On a job in France, he was shot in the back and awakens with his memory gone. The accused was removed from the cell at 1448 hours to go speak with Detective Jones. 
The accused was adamant that he was David Webb and continued to tell Detective Jones that he did not remember anything. He said he last remembered being in a truck in a sleeping bag on a pillow and being woken up by a man. He provided a description of this man having short blonde hair, brown eyes, and a tribal tattoo on his face. He claimed that the man had a gun to the accused face and said that he was watching my mom and was going to kill her if I did not deliver his money. He was going to drive to Seattle and somehow this man would find him, despite the fact that the accused had no longer had a phone. He then told Detective Jones, I'm just trying to help my mom, sir. Detective Jones left the room at 1627 hours and returned at 1643 hours. Upon his return, the accused told Detective Jones, quote, I just can't believe I would do something like that, unquote. He recalled going to work at the night around 630. Detective Jones asked, quote, were you mad when you got there, unquote. To which the accused replied, quote, I think so, just mad at the world, I guess, unquote. He said everyone at G4S teased him. He described G4S management as uncaring. He was mad at work and was further aggravated by problems they experienced at the night with their initial armored truck. He recalled having two stops prior to the hub mall. He said, quote, did our first two stops. I remember still being very angry, unquote. At 16.51 hours, the accused admitted to Detective Jones that he had shot three co-workers and Eddie, who was outside the truck. He didn't recall any reasoning to the order in which he shot them. He stated, quote, I think I was just mad at everybody, unquote. He admitted it when he shot each of them, he was aiming at their heads. After he shot Eddie, he got in the truck and drove, ending up at G4S. He drove to his house, grabbed his things, and left money for his mom. He went to his first friend's house, leaving him money, and then to the seconds. He felt he owed his second friend money for all that he had forked out for him during the years. He said he didn't get along with anybody at work. Everybody always made fun of him, and he kept to himself. He described what he did as blind rage. He put the vest in water in different places from the gun. He said they would be long down the river by now, probably in the ocean. No one will get it. He made sure of that. During the interview, the accused would become emotional, placing his hands on his face and crying. Near the conclusion of the interview, the accused wrote a letter to the victims expressing regret for his actions. The accused was returned to the same holding cell with the undercover officer at 18.05 hours. The conversation between the two was again video and audio recorded. The Q sat down on his bunk and immediately stated, quote, I did it all, unquote. Without prompting, he admitted to have killed those people and robbed their truck. During the course of their lengthy discourse, the accused discussed the circumstance of the offense and that the evidence they had against him was undeniable. He told the officer, quote, yeah, just fucking shot three people, actually four people, put the money in my truck and drove away, got rid of all the evidence, threw the gun away, unquote. He told the officer it was a 38 at point blank range. The officer remarked, quote, the jump on four at point blank, unquote. The accused replied, yeah. The officer said, quote, you must be fast, unquote. Here's the conversation between the accused and the officer. The accused, yeah, I was using hollow points too, so just brains are mush. 
officer. Yeah, fuck. The accused. They go in and they don't come out. Officer. All it takes is one, hey? Accused. Well, apparently not because the fourth guy. Officer. Yeah, well, fuck. The guy must have had a fucking head of steel. The accused. Yeah, I remember the last guy took three shots. Officer. Three? The accused. Yeah. Officer. Three to go down? Jesus, he's strong, eh? Accused. Yeah, don't think about it. It's over and done with now. I was really pissed when I fired that first shot. My hearing was... Officer. Hearing went? Accused. I couldn't hear anything because the, the gun was so loud. Fuck. Officer. You didn't even hear the other ones? You just saw them? Accused. Yeah, because that, like, ringing you hear in anything, any kind of movie or games, it's exactly I heard. Officer. Too loud. Accused. It's fucked up. Officer. Didn't see it coming. Accused. Nope, none of them. Officer. How the fuck? Accused. They didn't draw it fast enough. Officer. No skills. Accused. And literally probably three shots within a matter of two seconds. Officer. Fuck, that's fast. Accused. Yeah, it was crazy. Fucking the mafia would have been impressed. Officer. Pff, no shit. Fucking professional. At one point in the discussion with the undercover officer, the accused was discussing his financial situation. Accused. No, I wished they wouldn't have been there, so I didn't have to do that. Officer. You just go alone? Accused. No, well, you have to, but I just wish that I didn't have to do that. Officer. Strapped for cash, eh? Accused. 21 years old and 60 grand in debt already. Man, what the fuck am I gonna do? Officer. Sometimes you just gotta do something. Accused. Take the initiative. Officer. Yeah, grab the bull by the fucking horns. Accused. That's what I did. It just didn't end up very well. At least I don't have to worry anymore. Officer. No, I would say you don't have to worry about that fucking bill. Accused. No, no bills for me. Officer. Yeah, might save you some. Would have saved you some headaches if you could just, you know, grabbed it beforehand, I guess. Accused. Oh yeah, it would have saved me a lot of headaches, but... What could I do? Officer. Mm-hmm. Accused. An opportunity. There we go. All but approximately 1,400 of the cash stolen from G4S has been recovered. Dr. Bernard Benach, medical examiner, conducted autopsies on Eddie on June 18, 2012, and Brian and Michelle on June 19, 2012. In relation to Eddie, Dr. Benak reported the following. Eddie died as a result of multiple gunshot wounds to the head. There were three gunshot wounds to the head associated with skull and facial fractures, 
and penetration of the brain and brainstem by multiple bone fragments. Two of the wounds were through and through, and the third is associated with recovery of multiple bullet fragments from the head during autopsy. The first gunshot wound entered below the right eye with exit wound in the right ear region associated with facial fractures on the right. There was stippling present on the face in association with the gunshot wound. This is present on the left cheek and forehead region as well as the left side of the nose and the tip of the nose. The second entrance gunshot wound was at the back of the head with the fracturing of the skull on the left and an exit gunshot wound behind the left ear. The third gunshot wound entered the back of his head. In relation to Michelle, Dr. Benak reported the following. Michelle died as a result of a gunshot wound to the head. The gunshot wound entered above the left ear on the periteal scalp. There was penetration of the right and left cerebral hemispheres and an exit wound in the right periteal scalp above and slightly in front of the right ear. In relation to Brian, Dr. Benak reported the following. Brian died as a result of gunshot wound to the head. There were, there were two gunshot wounds. One is described as superficial through and through wound of the back of the neck involving the skin and the immediate subcutaneous tissues only. The fatal gunshot wound entered his head above the left ear, left parietal bone, and penetrated the left side of the brain, transecting the brain stem, exiting the base of the brain and the skull base, resulting in multiple radiating skull fractures. Matthew Schumann is recovering from his gunshot wound to the head. He is able to walk, talk, comprehend, and express himself. His prognosis is unknown, though he will always suffer memory issues. He was in the Glenrose Rehabilitation Clinic for three months. He continues to experience a variety of difficulties, including problems with meningitis and infection in his brain from the shrapnel. The brain injury has left him with the reading and writing deficit. On June 20th, Baumgartner was flown an RCMP aircraft to Edmonton, where he was taken to Edmonton Remand Center. The next day, Baumgartner appeared in court and was charged with three counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted murder, and four counts of robbery with a weapon. On September 9, 2013, Baumgartner pleaded guilty to one charge of first-degree murder for the death of Rihano, two counts of second-degree murder for the death of Ilicic and Shigleski, and a single charge of attempted murder. On September 11th, he was sentenced by Associate Chief Justice John Rook to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 40 years until 2052. At the time of Baumgartner's sentencing, it was the harshest sentence imposed on anyone in the history of Canadian judicial system since 1962 when Arthur Lucas and Ronald Turpin were executed in Toronto for capital murder convictions in separate cases. However, Eddie Rahano's brother Joseph said nothing will replace the loss of his brother, who was also known as the father of two. Quote, they're growing up without their father. You can't explain that to a child. It's the system, he said. You call it justice? Sure, justice. But my way of justice is back in the old days you hang them. That's justice for what he did, unquote. Quote, it's one of the better sentences we've had in Canada, considering the death penalty is out now, said Victor Shigleski, but my wife is still dead, 
and now I get to contribute my tax money to keep her killer alive. So that's definitely disappointing, close quote. And thus concludes the horrific crimes of shooter Travis Baumgartner. Thanks for listening.